long years ago. We made a tryst with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes which comes but rarely in history. When we step out from the old to the new, it is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello everyone. And welcome to India Colonized, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. I'm your co-host Rutika Chauhan and you're listening to Guftagu, a special series where we discuss and engage with varied authors and scholars of South Asian history. In this episode of Guftagu, we have with us Dr. Guy Bowman, author of the book The Indian Contingent, Forgotten Muslim Soldiers of Dunkirk. Dr. Guy Bowman is a historian, teacher and storyteller based in Exeter, England. He has also worked in the theatre, for NGOs and in education in the United Kingdom and around the world. This book, his very first, sprang from research he undertook to explore Exeter's multicultural history, which landed him onto three photos of Indian soldiers wearing pagdis in Devon. This furthered him to the National Archives, an MA at Exeter University and then a PhD. His five-year-long study of the Second World War's Indian contingent took him across five countries. As the title suggests, the book brings to light an omitted chapter of the historic Battle of Dunkirk, that is, the crucial role played by Indian soldiers in the evacuation of the Allies from a precarious battlefield. The Indian contingent, through rigorous research and engrossing narration, traces the journey of Force K-6 of the 25th Animal Transport Company of the Royal Indian Army Service Corps from their arrival in France on 26 December 1939, the captivity under the Germans, till their return to India on the verge of partition. Interestingly, 2020 marked the 80th anniversary of this dramatic evacuation of around 338,000 Allied troops from Dunkirk in May 1940 as the German army closed in. This wartime legend is also the subject of the award-winning 2017 film Dunkirk. But, as is only too evident from the film and other accounts of the Second World War, the presence of Indian soldiers is neither known nor remembered, at least in the Western world. Bowman's narrative of individual soldiers' lives in rural and urban Punjab, interwoven with his descriptions of the war, draws on his painstaking research that includes rare archives, diaries, photographs, and indeed memories passed on to descendants. The book leads up to the aftermath of the war and the new realities. This interview explores and examines the provided stances in the book along with other broader perspectives of the event. Here's the conversation with Dr. Guy Bowman. So, hello and welcome uh, Dr. Guy Bowman to India Colonize, a podcast on India's colonial modern history. 
uh, we are glad to have you on our podcast. Um, so before we begin to get inside questions uh, about your book, so here are a couple of biographical questions, a format that we usually follow. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself, um, the intellectual journey you had, and uh, the kind of books and people that have influenced you through this journey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Omer. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, the intellectual journey I've had uh, uh, is, is, is perhaps a little bit unconventional because I finished my PhD two years ago. Um, and I am, as you see, I'm not in my 20s. I'm actually just turned 60 a few weeks ago. So um, my journey has been, rather than being a kind of straightforward journey that follows one line along like that, it's been a kind of jumping around and somersaults and all kinds of different angles sort of journey, um, which has included working in the theatre for many years, uh, working as a teacher of English, working overseas. I was in, I worked in Turkey and I worked in Egypt and then working for a number of different NGOs in the UK and then recently coming back to education uh, to do postgraduate study uh, at Exeter University only about six or seven years ago. Uh, so, so it's been, an, it's been, which means that I have, um, I think I have quite a different approach to academia from some of the people who I've met along in the last few years at Exeter University and other universities. Um, I, I think I have a uh, um, I'm, I guess I'm more pragmatic, more perhaps a bit more down to earth. And certainly as far as history goes, I think I'm a great believer in public history. I'm a great believer in finding ways to communicate difficult, complex stories and ideas um, to, to communicate those with an ordinary audience, with a, you know, with a popular audience who maybe is, is, you know, is switched on and intelligent and well-informed, but doesn't have the the background that um, an academic audience would have. So I guess that's one of the kind of the principal things I would, I would kind of claim in terms of my intellectual journey is that I like to tell stories. I like to speak. I like to communicate with people, ordinary human beings, you know, and included within that is, is an academic audience, but, but it's a general audience. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so if, if you could tell us about um you know, how you started discovering the field, what brought your interest uh, in the field, or how did you switch interest, and what started this project? Great, yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't somebody, you know, 10 years ago, I wasn't someone with a great knowledge in South Asia or, or, or interest in South Asia. I mean, I had been to, I went to Nepal 20 years ago, but I had never been to India or Pakistan up until a few years ago. But what happened was I was doing a project um, here in Exeter. So Exeter is a small city in the southwest of England. Um, and I was working on a project on the multicultural history of this place. So we were tracking people who would come to Exeter from around the world um, for, you know, for all sorts of reasons. So to do with empire or to do with travel or to do with um, all sorts of things over 2000 years. So from the Romans up until now. Um, and we were looking for stories. We were looking for good stories. And you can still find the, the website of that project. Um, and we, so I came, I came across this book. Here, I'll show you the book. So this is um, a book called Devon at War. Um, and uh, it, it, it covers the whole of the Second World War. 
and um, and what happened in this part of the UK during that time. And in that book, here are three photos. And those photos are what started my this part of my life journey. Those are the photos that got me interested. Those are the photos that 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 got me, turned me into a historian, if you like. Um, so these are three three photos of Indian soldiers um, in this part of the country, in this part of Southwest England, kind of remote rural area, in the nineteen in nineteen well, it says nineteen forty. Um, and they've got mules, and they're wearing puggies, and they are here in this kind of rural part of, of, of Britain. And I was fascinated by that, and I, because I knew nothing about, you know, there being any Indian soldiers here during the war. So I followed that up. I went to the National Archives. I found some documents, and I very quickly found that this story was gripping and interesting and multifaceted, Firstly, but also this story was unknown. That this story was very largely un unheard of, and the fact that these guys had been at Dunkirk made it even more interesting. Dunkirk, which was a part of the Second World War, which is uh, very famous here in in the UK, very well known and very talked about and understood, or understood in a certain way anyway, mythologized. Um, but um, but the fact that there were Indian soldiers there and almost no one knew about it. And so that, that's what grabbed me. And that, then that journey took me to do a master's, then a PhD, and then to write the book. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, I recall how you mentioned that in the book about uh, UK's memory, uh, or the West's memory of Dunkirk does not have any um, idea of Indian soldiers being in it. So, um, so when you started the book, what was the journey like? Um, you know, the kind of methodology you approached it with certain limitations that you might have had due to archival or publication um, issues, yeah. So the methodology was, broadly speaking, a, a double path, really. So it, archival research and oral history. So the archives, uh, I, I went to all of the, 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 the major archives in the UK, the national, so the National Archives, the British Library, the Imperial War Museum, uh, and I went to lots of other smaller archives and, um, and local local libraries and so on. And I went to archives in France and in Germany, um, and those were all fruitful as well. And I went to India and I went to Pakistan. So I went to the National Archives of India in Delhi, and I tried to get into National Archives in Pakistan, but without really any luck. And the archives were very useful. Uh, and yeah, and the other part of that was newspapers. So there was lots of foot. There's lots of reports about these guys in um, various newspapers in the UK, in South Asia, and elsewhere around the world. They were really very well covered. And then the second part was the oral history. So the second part was finding people who people here in the UK who remembered them, um, who had met them when they were children or when they were teenagers and interviewing those people. And then also going to Pakistan and looking for relatives. I mean, I had a, when I went to Pakistan, which was in uh, 2018, I had a hope that I might actually find one of these soldiers still alive, um, but I didn't. Um, but I did find children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, you know, lots and lots of relatives of, of these soldiers who in some cases had some really quite 
considerable memories and documents. So that's, that was the, the twin track, really, was was of the of the research. Um, and the issues, the, the problems that I encountered, well, the big issue was that I wasn't able to get into any archives in, in Pakistan, um, and that was a shame. Um, and then also that there are documents that should be, that may still exist, but aren't findable. They're not in the in, in, in any of the archives I look for. So there are some gaps um, that I know, I know of some, some documents that would be really helpful that I I've never actually found yet. But having said that, uh, I did find an incredible amount of documents, which, which you know, were really, really good in giving me a clear picture of the story of these guys, as well as lots of detail about um, specific things that happened to them and specific incidents in their in their time in in France and in Britain. And so, you know, I mean, it was it was a long a, lo- a long detective process, really. I mean, that's what it was. It was it was about kind of following leads and um, you know putting information together and you know, for example, finding the the, the, the records of their hospital. So they had a, a particular hospital that was one of their um, units attached to them in France and in Britain. And I couldn't find that the documents, regard, you know, the, the, the files uh, about that in the National Archives until I went to a little town in Wales called Crickhowell and found a letter from one officer to another, which had the number of the hospital on it. And when I had that number, then I was able to go back to the National Archive and look up in their catalogue and find the documents that I've been looking for for years. It really was. It really was like being a detective, a detective, you know. Also, who's doing a jigsaw puzzle, but it's a jigsaw puzzle where you don't know what the whole picture looks like, and the pieces of the puzzle are scattered across different continents, and quite a few of the pieces are missing. So it was a, j- a jigsaw puzzle with a difference. But it was also. I mean, I. That's one of the things that I discovered was that actually I really enjoy that type of work. Um, I really like finding things and putting them together, um, and that. Uh, so that whatever the frustrations of the archival uh, research and the oral history research, whatever the frustrations were, actually it was really rewarding. That's, that's wonderful because uh, especially the archives records are not always maintained the right way. Um, you know, sometimes it's not catalogued. There are some things that just put in a pile up, and no one's really, no one really know what's there. So people are just looking through bundles and bundles to find nothing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And as you said, rewarding at the end of the day when your work comes together. Yeah. So, um, so, so you did say that there were certain gaps in your um, archival research. Has there been anything that you've come across since the publication of your book that you think might, uh, if not significantly, but add to the narrative of the work? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I keep... People keep contacting me, which is fantastic. I get emails from um, people in South Asia, people in in Europe, um, saying, "Oh, you know, do you know about this bit?" And and quite often, I don't know about that bit. And perhaps the best example was really very recently. I got an email from from somebody um, who told me that his father had been one of these soldiers who was who was at uh, in France, then he was in Britain, and that he had married an English woman and stayed in Britain, uh, which astounded me because up until now I've always thought and I've always told people you know when people ask me the question did any of them stay in Britain after the war and I have always said no they all went back 1944 they all went back to India um, and then some of them subsequently came back to the UK but essentially they all had to go to India but no that's not true one of them at least stayed in Britain and I met I met um, the son a couple of weeks ago and I met the mother um, who'd married him 
a couple of weeks ago and it was it was fantastic so um you know she she had, she was a 16 year old girl in 1942 in a little town called ross on wye which is in the west of england near the welsh border and she one day she was doing her homework and her mother said to her look see that see that boy over there he looks lonely take him a magazine so the boy was a 25 year old indian soldier um a uh, a veterinary trooper attached to the 29th company and he was um he was walking along by the side of the river and she took him a magazine and thought no more about it two weeks later the soldier was back again and the mother said look take him an apple so she took him an apple and then they started to become friends and then he was he was posted up to scotland he came back down again and, and proposed to her said you know can we get married and she said yes and, and and so it, uh, from and it went from there. So it was it was extraordinary because and he and he he managed to to get a discharge from the army. So um, uh, he he first of all they looked at transferring him into the British army. That wasn't successful. Um, but then uh, then he got a, a discharge from the army, an honourable discharge. He was allowed to leave, and he settled in Britain. And they he was they were together for forty seven years um, until he died in in nineteen uh, nineteen ninety, uh, which was amazing. <laughs> and if I'd known that story two years ago, it would have been in the book. But yeah, there we go. That's um, that's, yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think we can now go into talking a couple of questions about your book. Um, so. You know, what impact do you think will bringing out stories from South Asia's military history, um, you know, make a difference in the narrative of the war? Because not a lot of people um, do recognize or at least in, in the popular culture recognize the presence of South Asians or even, well, yeah, mostly South Asians. Uh, participation in the world war, which was magnanimous, was a lot of troops coming from the subcontinent. Um, so what do you think, you know, uh, what sort of difference does it make in the narrative? And, uh, you know, especially in the narrative of World War II? Uh, that's a great question. And I think that question looks different when you view it from here as when you view it from Punjab or Delhi or Karnataka or wherever. You know, I think it's, uh, and, and you know, you maybe, you know, having made the journey from from there to here, you know, maybe you have some sense of that. And I, myself, having visited India and Pakistan a little bit, I have some sense of that as well. But I mean, one thing that struck me when I when I went to India, 2017, I think, I went to Jaipur, first of all. And um, I went into, and I was trying to get a sense of how India and the people of India looked at the Second World War in general. So I went into a bookshop, um, a big bookshop with lots of English language books in Jaipur. And, um, and I went looking for the World War II books. So when you go into a bookshop in England, Waterstones down the road here in this little city of Exeter, you know, there are probably one, two, three bookcases of, of books on World War II. So, you know, each bookcase has got six shelves and each of them, you know, there's hundreds of books on the Second World War there. Um, and that's kind of my, that's what I expect from a bookshop or from a library or from, you know, any other place. It's loads and loads of books on all sorts of different angles of the war. So I went into this bookshop in Jaipur looking for the bookcase uh, of World War II books, and I didn't find a bookcase of World War II books. I didn't even find a bookshelf of World War II books. I found one book. In fact, I found this book. Ah, that's by uh, uh, Raghu Karnad, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
And I found this book, and of course I bought it, and I really enjoyed reading it. It was a, it's a great book. Um, but I was, you know, I was astounded. I thought that's extraordinary, you know. And I noticed that, of course, there were lots of books um, about partition, about independence, about um, Gandhi and Nehru, and to some extent, and the whole process of, you know, of that. And, and then I talked to. I talked to people, I talked to my uh, teacher, my Hindi teacher, and I talked to other people I was meeting about the war and about how it was viewed. And one of the things that struck me is that somebody I was talking to, somebody who was, you know, extremely well-educated and well-informed, and they kind of weren't clear in their mind about the dates of the Second World War. They weren't clear about when it happened, when it started and when it finished. And so I emerged, I very quickly realized that there is a, a fundamentally different way of viewing the 20th century uh, in India and in Pakistan from there is here. So instead, you know, in, in this country, 1935 to 1945, Sorry, 1939 to 1945 is a very clear period of time that has a particular meaning. And in India, you know, 1947 is a point in time which has a particular meaning and things are related. It's like a, it's like a, a peak, a summit, a pinnacle. Things relate to that. You know, it's either before that or it's after that. And and 40, the Second World War is just part of the process of before that. It's just part of the the process leading up to partition and independence. And, and you know, and the, 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 the level of knowledge, of engagement, of interest uh, in the Second World War is much smaller than it is in the UK. And that is, makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. But, well, as you say, two and a half million Indians, men from South Asia, including India and Pakistan, including Pakistan and Bangladesh, two and a half million men, 11, 11 and a half thousand women were part of the armed forces. Um, and then on top of that, enormous effort by people in factories and building roads and all kinds of different ways. You know, I mean, you know, one of my one of my other favorite books is this book. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, really, really good, really good book in terms of giving a good comprehensive, giving me a comprehensive understanding of, of not only India itself, but also the, the way that it interacted with the rest of the world during that period. Um, so, you know, millions of people were profoundly impacted. Millions of people in South Asia were profoundly impacted at that time. And I think that their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, Arnold, but maybe your grandparents were around at that time or your great-grandparents? Yeah, my grandparents, yes. Okay, your grandparents were around at that time. Um, and, and, you know, and they, they were, you know, they were affected by it in some way or another. They were affected. And yet people don't have necessarily have that knowledge. So when I was in Pakistan interviewing people in Punjab, sometimes quite often interviewing people in villages in Punjab, the same villages where their grandfathers had lived, they knew very, very little about the war and very, very little about what their relative had actually done and where they had been. And, and that really was quite striking. So I'm not saying that the war, the Second World War is necessarily more interesting or more valuable for memory in India and Pakistan, but it's certainly underrepresented. I mean, you could probably say it's overrepresented here in Britain. I'm sure you could, I think that's probably true, you know, that actually Second World War has a status uh, still, you know, um, 75 years after it ended, it still has a status which is out of proportion in some ways to actually what it could be. But Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, you know, so th th there's, there's a region or a school of thought which considers that uh, inclusion of South Asian soldiers in World War II was also a part of a propaganda. 
was also a part of a larger game. So what are your views on that? I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think I think that um, so the guys that I'm I'm been writing about, you know, Force K6 as they were known, they were um, they were mule drivers. They were four companies of the Royal Indian Army Service Corps who came with their mules and with their carts and came to the south of France at the end of 1939 um, and were part of the attached to the British Expeditionary Force, the British Army in France. Um, and they were there for a military purpose, for sure. They were there in order to do supply and transport in difficult circumstances where the, uh, the, the the motor transport wouldn't work because the British Army had no didn't have that skill at the time. So that's an interesting point, that the, the skill of um, looking after mules and running mule transport or animal transport more generally didn't exist in the British Army in 1939, but it did exist in a very large extent in the Indian Army. So they were there for a military purpose, but right from the beginning, there was also a propaganda purpose. So when they landed in Marseille, they were filmed and they were photographed and they were there were reports in the newspapers not just in in Britain, but in India and, you know, in New York. I mean, in the New York Times, there is an article about these guys. You know, in a newspaper in in New Zealand, there's an article about these guys. You know, it went across the world, this this, this story. Um, And I can show you, if you like, I can show you some film footage from from that time. Um, Yeah, definitely. Okay, I will. So this, this, I will share my screen. Hopefully this will work. Okay, so this is a bit of film footage from... Um, from the newsreel, so from the Pathé newsreel uh, that went out, uh, and, and this is this is actually as shown in in India. So the the um, the the the, so the commentary is by Zede Bukhari, who went on to become the who was who was working for the BBC during the war. After the war, he started Pakistan Radio, so he was a, a, a uh-huh. broadcaster and a journalist. And um, and this is Marseille. The end of December 1939 uh, as they load, as they unload the ships uh, in, uh, in France. ये बात मशहूर है कि खच्चर बहुत अड़ियल जानवर है लेकिन ये खच्चर बहुत असील मालूम होते हैं अरे नहीं आजा भाई आजा ये Fascinating clip. It's great. I, I love that film. It's um, uh, and, and he's. I mean, there's a whole ten-minute uh, YouTube video of that. Um, we could definitely link that in the description. Yeah. Right. Right. And he. Um. And, and his commentary is very. Um. Very amusing as well. He kind of. Uh, he's. He's a good. You know. He's great at. Um, Improvises really well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. So, so yes. So they were, you know, they were there with always that twin purpose. They were there for a military purpose and they were there for propaganda. No doubt about that. So what sort of propaganda was it serving? To say that, you know, we are here together, that the empire is united, that the men from India and the mules from India have come 7,000 miles to help us. 
um, and that we stand together. Um, and and I, I guess it, dep it depends on... So, so the, the message that they were sending in that one is different from the message they were sending in Britain. So they, they had the same... In Britain, they had the same footage with a different voiceover. And in, in the British version, it's all about, yes, the empire is together and these lucky little men from, you know, from the other side of the world have come to help us. Um, whereas there... The message is, is different for an Indian audience. You know, um, it, it's it's more about, um, you know, that we are needed. And it's also about, to some extent, there's, you know, there's also this, this you know, I mean, it, so at this time, Suhas Chandra Bose was, I think he was under house arrest at the end of 1940. Because he escaped in 41, I think. I can't remember exactly when he escaped. But he was... You know, so but this idea existed within certain sections of Congress and within certain sections of in India that that not only was it the war was not uh, something that, that India wanted to be involved with, but actually, you know, the war was something was an opportunity for India to to to, to, to make a military struggle in order to find its independence. Um, and as the war went on, the clearly, you know, that obviously that took off, particularly with the INA in 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 Burma in the east, but also with the with what Bose did before that in Europe, which which included um, so the the recruitment of Indian prisoners of war into the German army included some of the soldiers from uh, the force cases I've been studying. So um, you know, the propaganda message in in India uh, in South Asia was a different one. But generally, yeah, it, it's a clear message that, you know, the empire stands together um, and that we are, you know, that we are going to resist the, in this case, resisting the Nazis um, with the help of India, Canada, Cyprus, you know, Australia, etc. Yeah. Um, so with, with all of that propaganda, that like that dual message being sent, saying uh, it's different in the UK, it's different what's being said in the subcontinent, but also at the same time we have the nationalist movement gain it, gaining its peak. Um, even Gandhi to quite an extent has um, gained, a, gained, gained a hold in the population of India. So uh, my question, mostly whenever I, uh, whenever before I used to start pondering about uh, Indian participation in the world war was always like what motivated people to participate in the world war, uh, especially in, in times as such. Right. Um, so all of the guys you saw in that bit of film were professional soldiers who'd been in the army for at least a few years. Um, in some cases, they'd been in the army for 20 or more years. So quite a few of them were veterans of the First World War. Uh, so Major Akbar Khan, for example, that we might talk about later, he'd been in the army since before the First World War. So these were guys who, who hadn't, and of course later on, they were reinforced by men coming out from India who, who were more, you know, who, who had joined during the war. But, so there's no, there's no conscription in India, you know, these were all, um, they didn't have to join the army, although there were, clearly there were economic imperatives um, there were things that meant that, you know, that their life was, was economically better and the lives of their families was economically better. And there was the tradition of military service. So these guys were from, you know, one of the martial races. So there's this very strong idea that some, some parts of India and some types of men in India are inherently 
better warriors. You know, they can they know how to fight because it's in their blood. And these guys were almost all of them were what was called Punjabi Muslims. But they were Muslims from the north of Punjab, um, from the Potwar Plateau around Ralpindi, uh, Jhelum, those kind of areas, um, and and around there. So to some extent, Kashmir, to some extent, the what was then the northwest frontier as well. Um, so they were, you know, they were to some extent following family tradition or at least local tradition. They were recruited actively um, uh, in, in their villages. So the recruiting parties would go out uh, from the British army, from Ralpindi, and go around the villages aiming to recruit a certain number of men. And they were earning money to send home to their families. Um, and, and as I say, quite a few of them were, were, were already veterans for quite a long time. So they would probably have served on the northwest frontier um, uh, already. Um, so they, they were there. Yeah, they were there because, because it was for them, it was a job. It was, you know, it was, it was the job that they signed up to do. Some people, um, you know, called them mercenaries. And I think that's an interesting term. You know, I mean, um, a mercenary being somebody who, who fights for money or anybody who will pay them. Um, and certainly it's interesting when you think that some of them did join later, did join the German army. And what was the what were the motivations there? Um, so, I mean, I don't think in most cases, I don't think their motivations were political. Um, I don't think their motivations were very mass were much about loyalty to the empire or to the king emperor or to the Raj. You know, I mean, they actually a lot of them did end up meeting the king, but that kind of was after they had you know joined the army. So um, I, it's much more, I think, about local the local feeling in the village and in the household. And, you know, what is kind of what is almost expected of a young man in those villages in, in the north of Punjab in the 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, fascinating. So with, with some economic um, uh, benefits as well as the local traditions, as mostly what is. Um, yeah. So to so the next question was about um, if, if you could explore a little bit about the experience of these soldiers uh, on the front and uh, especially uh, of, of those who were taken as prisoners of war. Mm, right. Um, I mean, their experiences were, were, were quite mixed. So I'm going to show you, some, show you some more photos. So you see that photo okay? Uh, yeah. yeah. So this is, this is in four months, yeah, four months after they landed. They're in the north. This is the 25th company. They're in the north of France, um, uh, near... In the suburb of the city of Lille, which is a big city uh, in the right up in the north corner of France, where the British Army was based, mm. um, and it's a Sunday, um, and as they had done on several Sundays, they put on a gymkhana, um, and there are lots. This is from a series of photos taken on that day, um, and the other photos show um, men doing trick riding on the back of mules, so standing up on the top of the mule and um. jumping over things and doing all kinds of. You know, sort of acrobatics and they also show dancing so there's um there's some guys with a, a doll and a chimta um and they're playing music and then there's some guys who are dancing bhangra um here in this little village in the north of france uh, uh, and um and then this photo shows the audience so you have the uh the soldiers at the front um some of them have got children on their laps french little french children uh, behind them, you've got the French civilians. There's this wonderful woman in the middle of the picture who's clapping her hands, who's got no teeth. Um, there's a French policeman, a gendarme, you know, and they're, 
having a wonderful time and they're together and i think that's that is that's sort of uh, something about a, a really that's why i like this photo because it kind of tells this story of about them being together mm-hmm. about them being in, not integrated but about them having good relationships with civilians in france and then later in britain as well uh, they 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 get on with people really well. They get on with kids really well. You know, they 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 form lots of very strong relationships, um, and some of those relationships are with are with children. So that's that's kind of one facet of their experience. Um, I'm just going to skip on to another um, another aspect of their time, which let me just skip over that one. Okay, this one. So this is an important aspect of of their life in 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 France and in Britain is what they ate. So this is on the right, the photo gives you a, an indication of their ration. So this is what they were entitled to every day. So um, so one pound and eight ounces of atta, which is 450, is about 700 grams. So I think that's enough for about 12 chapatis. So they're eating a lot of chapatis every day. So every, every company, every company is 315 men. Every company has three cooks attached to it. And I think one of those guys is basically spending all his day making the batis. Um, and uh, there's lots of photos of chapatis being made. So they're entitled to chapatis. They're entitled to different types of dal. Uh, there's some ghee, uh, meat, six ounces of meat. So every day, remember these guys are mostly Muslims. Every day, each company is slaughtering six sheep. So they have a little flock of sheep. Every company has a little flock of sheep uh, attached to it. Um, and they are being getting new sheep regularly from local farmers, and every day they're killing six sheep, and they are making them into into curry. And this was this is a big part of the you know the, the logistics around the around supplying these birds. So they have vegetables, they have spices, uh, they have tea, um, salt and sugar, they have marmite, um, and um, the and most of this is coming from India, in fact. So the meat is obviously local. Uh, the vegetables are local. Uh, but the at least at the beginning of the war, the atta was being sent from India because there is a difference. So I am told by those who know about flour, there is a difference between the wheat grown in Punjab and the wheat grown in Britain and France. Um, and that difference makes it, it means that the flour has more gluten in it. Um, and so it's different when you when you try to make it into bread. So for quite a long time, the flour was coming from um, from India, uh, and the the spices were coming from India. And what they found with some of that is that particularly the garlic, the garlic. So uh, it would take several weeks to come by ship. Um, longer as the war went on, and the ships had to go round Africa, it would take several weeks for the for the these shipments to arrive in Europe. And by that time, the ginger, the, the garlic was not um, was not usable any longer. So they had to reduce the amount of garlic they were having. And and then as the war went on, so the next picture. So here's here's the um, one of the guys making chapatis. Um, two of the guys making chapatis. And um, as the war went on, their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Hills, he proposed some changes. So they started to be interested in white bread, so British style white bread. And uh, that was added to their uh, to their diet. And then they found a way of making the use, using local flour. It did work. They reduced the. They had less dal. They had they added some local pickles and pepper and jam. Um, and the garlic. They skipped the garlic because it wouldn't 
it wouldn't last the trip from from India. And at those days, there was no garlic grown in Britain. It wasn't it wasn't available in Britain. Nowadays, it's a very common thing. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm going to probably be planting some garlic myself next week because this is the right time to do it. But um, in those days, there was garlic wasn't really grown in the UK. So that's another aspect of their um, of their time in 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 Europe. So you ask you ask about the prisoners of war, didn't yes. you? Yeah. So the twenty second company. Uh, they were posted slightly separately from the others, and they were right up um, in uh, near a city called Metz, and they were near the Maginot Line. So the Maginot Line was this enormously complicated uh, concrete uh, defence along the north and the northeast of France, um, along the border with Germany, which had been constructed at great expense in the 1930s by the French, specifically to keep the Germans out. And, and there was a uh, a division of the British Army, the 51st Highland Division, was posted around that Maginot line, and these the 22nd Company were attached to them. Um, and when the Germans attacked in May 1940, they became cut off, and they tried to march to Switzerland to get away, uh, but they were captured in the middle of June of, of 1940, and then they spent five years in prisoner of war camps. So they were the um, they spent the longest period of any. Indian soldiers in, in prisoner of war camps in the war. And it's it's very interesting, their experience. It was quite quite a mixed experience. So one of their officers um, was, uh, let me just find you him. So Anis Ahmed Khan. So he was born in 1924. His father was the vice chancellor of Aligarh Muslim University. Um, he, was he got his military education at Sandhurst. Born in 1924. Sorry, that's a mistake. He was born in 1904. <laughs> I made a mistake on that. Um, uh, and he he got his military education at Sandhurst, which is the the British place where British officers were trained, had been trained for 100 years and more. And he he was one of the first Indians to go there to uh, to be trained as an officer. And then he was posted to the Madras Pioneers, and then the first Punjab Regiment, and then the Royal Indian Army Service Corps. And he's in that photo. Uh, in the middle of the third row from the back. I don't know if you can see my... I think that's him there. Not, can't quite remember. Um, so there he is in that photo. And then a little bit later... So this is him in 1939. This is September, 1st of September, 1939. So the day that the war was declared. Here he is in Delhi with his wife and four children. He later had, there was another one born, whom I met. Um, and he's, um, he's in his, uh, he's been in the army for 15 years at this stage. He's risen to the rank of captain. Um, you know, he's very, he's kind of getting on well. And he's, he's now a captain in the 22nd company. Here he is a little bit later. But this is, uh, he wrote a, a postcard. So um, this is a photo that his daughter had. Um, and... Uh, this is a photo from 1942, and he wrote a postcard to his cousin. Um, and he was held in a number of different prisoner of war camps. So in, in Germany, different parts of Germany, um, he was moved around. And these, these guys, so there were 300 and, about 320 of them who were taken prisoner in, in June of 1940. And then as the war went on, there were more and more Indian prisoners of war in Italy and in Germany and in France and um, about 15,000 of them by the end of the war. So he, he was the first officer. He was the first, and for quite a long time, he was the only Indian officer in, in German captivity. And therefore, of course, Suhas Chandra Bose was very keen 
to get him to join the German army. But he refused. He refused. He said what his, what his daughter told me was that he said that he had tasted the king's salt. And therefore, even though he was a nationalist, even though he was, you know, at this time keen on 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 freedom and independence for South Asia, uh, he refused to be um, to join the German army. And he spent you know, he spent nearly five years in prisoner of war, prisoners of war camp, which, you know, I think must have been very tough. I mean, I think if you think about these 320 men, so about 30 of them joined the German army, took a German uniform and um, were posted in uh, the Netherlands and then in the southwest of France um, and didn't really see much in the way of active service, although some of them did, uh, and then were eventually were, were captured by the Allies again at the end of the war. The 30 of them joined the German army, about 10 of them escaped. And there are some fascinating stories there about those escapes um, uh, and how they got to Spain or to Switzerland and different ways that that happened. Um, really fascinating stories. But most of them did what most prisoners of war did, which is they sat and they waited. Um, and uh, they now, of course, there's a big difference for, for Captain Annis because he was a, an officer, so he didn't have to work. But all of the ordinary soldiers, all of the sergeants and so on downwards, they had to work. So they were required, um, and this was in the Geneva Convention. So they were working in, in the fields or maybe in factories. Um, they were doing some work for the, for the local German population. Um, and in that, you know, uh, which was 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 tough, but it meant they were they were also they were also paid. And then they also got um, they all of them got got parcels from the Red Cross. So the Red Cross was responsible for um, looking after all of the British and Commonwealth prisoners uh, in Germany, and also responsible for looking after all the German prisoners who were here in the UK, and indeed the Italian prisoners who were in quite large numbers in India. Um, so they, the, the Red Cross would go and visit the camps every uh, regularly, I think twice a year, and they had a man of confidence, as they called them. So every camp, there was a man of confidence who was elected by the prisoners to speak directly to the Red Cross representative without there being any Germans present. So they could, you know, they felt there was a kind of way to get their get their um, their grievances heard, and uh, and then there were there were parcels that came regularly um, from from the UK, which had um, extra food and cigarettes and so forth. So, but interestingly, the one of the interesting things about this is, is that. Now, obviously, the Nazis had very clear ideas about race. You know, the Nazis were inherently racist. I mean, they advertised themselves as being racist. They were proud of being racist. And um, and meant is that, so clearly, the, you know, the French army who experienced um, ill treatment or in some cases were killed um, immediately. So there were, there were black soldiers who were treated badly. Um, and Russian prisoners of war were treated badly. But... Generally speaking, Indian prisoners of war were, were not. They were treated the same as other Commonwealth prisoners. So they were treated the same as Australians or British or, or South Africans or whatever, which, um, which, was, you know, which was meant that they actually were treated a lot better than some of the other prisoners around them. So they survived, you know, the majority of them survived the war um, in those prisoner of war camps. And then at the end of the war, because there had been so many of them who had joined the German army, they all came to Britain. Um, they were all brought to camps in east, the east of Britain, east of England, um, where they were processed and questioned and, uh, 
and um, by, by British intelligence before eventually being sent back to India. So it was quite, you know, I think being a, a, a prisoner of war in Germany was, you know, very, very difficult, particularly towards the end of the war when the, when the rations got very, very, very poor indeed. I mean, the, the whole, uh, all of the camps were undersupplied. There was a lot of hunger in the camps. Um, but it was always better being a prisoner of war in Germany than it was being in a concentration camp. So I guess that, that's some kind of yeah. compensation, perhaps. Perhaps. So um, it was fascinating to learn about the concept of um, Namak Halali, the, the, uh, I've eaten the king's salt. I remember mm. reading one of these works um, that stresses on the idea of how Namak Halali and Namak Harami was a very strong concept that even the British kind of rooted uh, and, and, and they emphasized that the soldiers um, kept in mind that you have to, you know, Namak Halali is a concept that you need to stick to. And you've mm. got to be obedient to your masters. And uh, But, but, but uh, moving on to talk about one of the major protagonists of the story, Major Akbar Khan. Um, you know, how far does his account help us understand the kind of military developments in British India or colonies as, as a whole? And also, if you can tell us a bit about uh, the audience, a bit about Major Akbar Khan. Indeed. Uh, so uh, he's a major figure. I mean, he's a fascinating figure. Let me show you uh, a picture of him here. So this is actually a painting uh, that was made. The two paintings were done together. Um, so this was a, um, a British war artist by the name of Henry Lamb. He painted these two pictures in 1941, Hereford, which is in the west of England. Um, uh, the chap on the right is driver Abdul Ghani, who's young, in his 20s, perhaps. We know almost nothing about him. Um, and that portrait is now in a gallery in Glasgow in Scotland. Um, on the left, we have Major Akbar Khan, who's about 50 years old. Um, and that portrait is now in the Imperial War Museum. It's very recently become part of their permanent display there. Um, so he was, um, he was in the Great War. He was in the First World War, a Jemadar in the cavalry. He was in Mesopotamia, in Iraq. Um, and he was taken prisoner briefly in, in the First World War. He escaped. And then at the end of the war, in 1919, he became part of the very first group of Indians to be trained as officers. So um, the, this, this idea of Indianization had been around for a long time, um, and eventually it started after the First World War. So um, he was, he was yes, yeah, so he was trained as an officer in 1919, and then he spent the period, the next 20 years, slowly rising up the ranks um, until uh, 1939, the beginning of the war, he was uh, a major. So he was a major in the 25th Company, of the Royal Indian Army Service Corps. And um, he was sent with them to France um, and he was there. So the photo that I showed you before of the Jim Khanna, he was there uh, on that day um, and he, that was his company. So that was, a one, that was the, one of the two companies that actually was at Dunkirk. So they, um, they, they left that place in, in Lille uh, on uh, sort of about the 20, 20th of May, 1940, and marched towards the coast and reached Dunkirk on the 28th of May. And he was, in fact, the only Indian officer on the beach at Dunkirk. So that's a really quite a considerable badge, if you like, for him. And he was well known. I mean, he was well known in, in India and he was, he was 
also quite well known in Britain already at the time. So he was evacuated uh, in the middle of the night with the men from the from the beach at Dunkirk, where where all this, you know, the, the, they must have been a. It must have been a bit like hell, really. You know, I mean, there was there was the German airplanes coming in and bombing and machine gunning. Um, there was uh, an oil refinery which had been set on light and the smoke was drifting across. There were the boats coming in, little boats coming into the beach and bigger boats coming into the mole, um, the quayside, pick up the men, and they were being attacked by the air, air force. Uh, and it, you know, it was it was it was hell, hell on a beach. I mean, it was not a good place to be. Um, and he was there, and he and he marched his men through that hell to the to the mole, the eastern mole, and they were picked up from there in the middle of the night. And what he wrote in his memoir was that they then got back to England, to Dover, in the southeast corner of England, uh, on the next day, the 29th of May, and they were waiting at the station to be taken uh, on to their destination. And the there was the women's voluntary service with cups of tea and sandwiches. And the men drank the cups of tea and took the sandwiches and probably looked suspiciously at what was inside the sandwiches because it might have been ham. Um, I, I hope it wasn't ham, but it might have been. And um, and then they drank the tea and then they uh, went to the women and they said, can we borrow your trays and can we borrow your your pots? And they, they borrowed them and they started to make music and they started to play music and they started to dance on the platform at Dover Station on the 29th of May, just back from Dunkirk, covered in dirt and covered in sweat and not having slept properly and there they are dancing on the platform at Dunkirk at Dover railway station and then what what Akbar says in his memoir is that the um the the the, the, the British soldiers and the British civilians joined them and they're all dancing there on the on the on the platform at Dover. I I just think that's a fantastic story and I think you know the, my my hope is that someday someone's going to make a film about this you know, maybe a Bollywood film or maybe a, a British film or maybe a film that's kind of in between the two, you know, but that scene of the dancing on uh, the railway station just needs to be a film. Anyway, so he, he, he went on and he met, he spent about a year, about a year and a bit in, in England. He met lots of important people. He met the king. He became good friends with Amory, who was the, um, uh, the secretary of state for India at that stage. And he, in fact, corresponded with Amory for many years after that, and and Amory's wife as well. Um, and he, um, he, yeah. So he, he stayed with them for uh, for about a year, and then he went back to India, and he was doing recruitment, and he was um, doing various roles within the. Because at this stage, he was, I think, he was a kind of propaganda guy. Really, he was, you know, this is a guy that we could use, who has seen, who was, you know, one of the very first Indians to be in, in action who has seen the Germans, you know, who can come back and, and talk and uh, try and um, counteract, you know, the kind of the Congress narrative, the Quit India narrative, um, and try and continue the, the, the recruitment process. Because, of course, the, the recruitment into the army was really important, became increasingly important after 41, after the Japanese entered the war. Um, and at the end of the war, he was, he was a colonel, and then 47 partition he was he, he he went to pakistan although he had relatives i mean he was originally from punjab he was from Pakistan, but he had relatives all, all around um but he went to pakistan and he was at that stage the highest ranking officer in the pakistan army he was um, his number was pa1 
um, and he um, he was a major general, uh, but he resigned fairly soon afterwards. He was Jinnah's aide-de-camp as well, but he didn't stay in the army for very long. Um, he retired and he lived many, many years in Karachi um, and had lots of children and grandchildren and was really... Uh, and I've met one of his daughters. I've met lots of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They all remember him with great affection. He was a, he was a lovely man. Uh, um, um, and um, and they, his, his family spread out across the globe as well. You can find them in Switzerland, in Britain, in, in oh. the United States, all around, um, and, and, and in India as well as Pakistan. So, he, yeah, he was a great, a great figure, and, um, and he uh, is now, as I say, this portrait, you can now find it on display at the Imperial War Museum in London, and it's really, um, it's, it's good that finally... The Imperial War Museum is starting to remember these guys as well. That's that's absolutely fascinating. I hope to visit it someday during my stay here. Um, so one of the other things that I really wanted to ask was um, South Asians could be one category of people who are not uh, actively recalled in the memory of the World War. Um, even about uh, even even specifically when it comes to Dunkirk, so do we have any other such um, you know communities or nationalities or people or sets of people who have been um, not brought into the narrative of, of the world war? Where do you start? <laughs> you know, where do you finish? I mean, it, it's, it's from a British point of view, the war is seen um, in a very limited way. And I think that's true in most places as well, even by historians. You know, the war is seen as being a, a number of. So if you go to school in this country, for example, you learn about you, you, most thing you learn about is the home front, about the blitz and about evacuees and about gas masks and that kind of thing. And you learn a little bit about some of the kind of the big battles. And if you go to school in the United States, you know, you learn about um, Pearl Harbor and D-Day and the Pacific and maybe North Africa and Italy. But again, it's, it's very limited. And part of that is about, it, it's not only about the schools and about the educational process and about historians, but it's also about popular culture also about what comes into the film, what comes into movies and television, you know. So, you know, Saving Private Ryan, for example, the film by Steven Spielberg, which I think was about 20 years ago now. I think if you, peoples in this country, people in the United States, their vision of what D-Day looked like is completely based around that, the first bit of that movie. You know, that's kind of, that's, that's it for them. So, you know, what, so this, there's this clear narrative in Britain, in, in, in the States, um, a different narrative in France, a different narrative in Germany, you know, but each of those is limited, it's extremely limited. So, for example, one of the, probably one of the biggest examples is the fact that the, the people in Britain don't realise the major effort of defeating the Nazis done by the Soviet Union. It was done by the Russians, and they lost about 20 million people during the war, civil, civilians and soldiers, you know, and that, that, that actually after, after the middle of 1941, that was really where the, the major effort of the Germans was. On the front. Or China, you know, the fact that China, actually for China, the war had already started by 1939 because they'd been fighting the Japanese for several years already, and that that conflict was incredibly bloody and, and 
terrible and, you know, created, you know, was also really central to the Chinese history of the, of the 20th century. So, you know, there's these big kind of stories that are unknown, you know, like that. You know, but then there are all kinds of other, I mean, for example, there was a, um, uh, an army from Brazil. The Brazilians sent an army of around 50,000 men that fought on the Allied side in Italy. Um, and was there at some of the important battles in Italy. You know, almost nobody outside of Brazil knows about that. And then you have these other, you know, then there are little stories. So, I mean, I think, this, I think the story of Force K6 is a little story, which is in some way reflective of the bigger story of, of South Asia. But it, it is essentially, it's only a few, a few thousand men. So you've got that story. Then you've got, you know, some stories like my, um, my father, who was in, in, in radar um, in the Royal Air Force, there was a detachment or a, a radar unit that was posted in Turkey, in the in the west coast of Turkey. Um, and now Turkey was neutral, or at least Turkey was supposedly neutral up until the end of the war. Um, but these RAF guys were in there doing their radar detection of the Greek islands in um, in, in 1944. You know, so I mean, the, the, how many? You know, it's it's. Oh, how many unknown stories are there, you know, and how many, how many can, can, we, can we find? I mean, I think that's within the scope of something as catastrophic and cataclysmic as the Second World War. You know, the Holocaust, six million Jews, European Jews murdered. You know, within the scope of that overall enormousness, there are any number of, of opportunities, if you like, for people to pursue some evil and some villainy of their own in a small local level. And then there are any number of political opportunities um, as well, you know, and, and how many stories are there not, not told? Too many stories, too many. Yeah, but um, so, so we do have records and uh, we do have probably not active memory, but we do have some memory of, of Key's participation of other peoples in uh, in the world war. But, uh, you know, you do mention in the book that the memory of, say, even the Indian participation in the world war was active a few years uh, uh, into the war and after the war as well. Uh, but then it declines and then it, like no one really remembers that part of Indian participation, unless it's, uh, uh, you know, invoked actively. So uh, what do you think caused that sort of amnesia? Um, and was it because where people started to personalize the experience of the war? And uh, will our understanding, I mean, I know probably <laughs> too many questions in the line. Uh, so that personalization of experience Will it change how we see the war, say, the same war in 20, 30 years down the mm -hmm. lane when we would have probably completely lost the generation uh, who've um, experienced the war but actively or even witnessed the war? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the personalization of experience is really important, you know, and, and um, I mean, I was born in 1961. So uh, there's a phrase that Eric Hobsbawm uses about the twilight zone before you were born, but a, a, a period which is sort of in your memory because, because of family and popular culture. So if I feel in some way that, that the, the war is almost in my memory because of that, even though it was 15, finished 15, 16 years before I was born. But nevertheless, you know, I, I think 
I mean, firstly, I would say that as a historian, I would encourage everybody to talk to their grandparents and their parents and get their memories, you know, record their memories while they're still around, regardless of, you know, if it's the Second World War or whatever it is, you know, those people lived through interesting times and you should kind of find out what that was like, you know, so you can put the personal individual memory alongside the popular memory alongside the way that the way that historians present it and you can understand it on a personal level i think that's important to do but so your question about about you know the memory that was active is or rather the you know they were known about at the time um and then forgotten afterwards you know where does that amnesia come from i think that's a great question and i think it, it, it's it's really quite difficult to answer but i think it, it, the, the clues to the answer lie in what happened after the war so during the war, you know, there was enormous participation from the British Empire. You know, I haven't mentioned, you know, West African and East African troops, for example, who were in Burma in very large amounts. Um, you know, there, there was participation from Jamaica, you know, the, the lots of Jamaicans in the Royal Air Force. There were um, uh, um, uh, lumberjacks from British Honduras who were in Scotland. You know, the, all of this, all of these, this crossing this forced migration uh, um, across the across the world you know it was, at the time it was recognized it was part of you know it was propagandized the empires coming together we're all fighting for the purpose and then of course with the in the case of force k6 you know they were actually meeting people on a personal level there were people you know and that's why i've I found these great stories about people in these villages in france in, in france and, Bel and uh, wales and scotland and england people who remember them and who or who fell in love with them you know um, great stories. So they were known, and they were they were celebrated. And to some extent, the racism was suspended for the duration of the war. You know, they were kind of accepted in a way that they wouldn't have been beforehand and wouldn't have been afterwards. The end of the war in Britain, there was a general election before the end of the war, in fact, um, and there was a new government and there was a new spirit in the country. The new, the first Labour government, first. Labour majority government, and um, there was a, a, a whole new agenda in the country, which was to do with reconstruction, to do with you know setting up the national health service, to creating a welfare state, nationalising the big industries, um, and moving away. Yes, moving away from the empire. So the new prime minister Clement Attlee was, you know, he was quite happy to let India move away in 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 a fairly quick period at the end of the war. Um, and so there's a, there's, I think there's a refocusing in the public imagination on what we need to do here at home and, and the physical reconstruction. You know, there were buildings all across the country that had been destroyed and, and city centres like Exeter right here. The city centre was completely destroyed by the German bombers, you know, and um, there was a lot of of that sort of work needed to, needed to happen. So I think that's, in, in this country, I think that's where the amnesia came from. And then it, and then it continued from there uh, as, as the post-war period went on, the 50s and the 60s, and there was this beginning of this mythologizing of certain aspects of the war. So for example, prisoners of, of war and the escapes of prisoners of war became very popular subjects for books and films and then TV shows uh, after the war. And there were some great stories and some great films, you know, made about that. North Africa campaign, very much, you know, part of the film, part of the uh, uh, the armory of, of British films made after the war. Um, and to some extent, Dunkirk um, 
and to some extent, um, you know, the home front. But but clearly, there's a kind of there is yeah, there's a refocus, uh, and then the amnesia I think gets compounded, becomes stronger as as it goes on after the war and into the end of the 20th century. And then there comes this process of recognition and re-remembering of, you know, contributions from the empire, uh, from South Asia, but also Africa, the Caribbean, and so forth. That, that, and that's a process which is much more recent, I think probably a 21st century process. But it's complicated. You know, memory is a really complicated thing and difficult to, to, to understand. Yeah, but but I think it was uh, gaining momentum even in South Asia where people are looking forward to understand the war um, mm. and the Indian participation in the war. People, I think there is an interest or maybe I'm just feeling that way because um, one of the first initial projects that I worked on uh, in my college years was on the Indian participation of uh, uh, in the Great War. So... Um, I think there is some fascination to it, but um, uh, even the recent, uh, uh, I don't know how recent, but this movie uh, played by Akshay Kumar and Kesari about these uh, uh, Punjabi uh, Sikh soldiers holding the fort uh, against the Afghan Duranis um, kind of sparked uh, conversations about, oh, the Indians serving um, the British and protecting mm-hmm. borders for the English um, while uh, uh, India was, you know, struggling to identify um, itself in, in the national movement. Um, and a couple of other movies uh, that I guess that's, that's coming up or that have come up, um, I think another played by Akshay Kumar, The Gold, about the Indian hockey team, um in uh, yeah the indian hockey team playing for british india in the olympics um is that the 1936 olympics i suppose in, so I in berlin i didn't know that that was um i, I didn't know they made a film about that I've, I've, i haven't caught up with that yet yeah i think it's a movie called cold yeah um so but but it, it revolves around the story of the trainer and the hockey team and how uh, split by partition um, the, the same team found itself uh, divided by partition. So he brings a team to win a gold for India, but then it's split uh, because of partition and the violence and the Muslims who were together as a team now are finding themselves um, looking to go to Pakistan. Or I don't really mm-hmm. remember the plot, but I think that's pretty much uh, uh, the kind of story that it revolves around. So yeah, I, I, there is a sort of invocation of... Uh, such memory, at least that I think in, in popular media that's going on, and mm-hmm. um, even engagement with colonial history. Um, quite many of even Dalimple's work are being turned into movies. I think William Dalimple's Anarchy is mm-hmm. also um, in, in the inmates of being made. But I hope that it does, uh, that it does gain momentum. Um, mm-hmm. And people do engage a lot in trying to understand, I mean, what I think is a recent past and gives you a lot of context to assert uh, ideas and opinions and uh, feelings of mm-hmm. how we feel mm-hmm. about history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was an uh, absolutely engaging conversation. Uh, before we bring the conversation to an end, a couple of uh, questions that we have, the concluding questions is like, um, 
what project are you currently working on or what projects uh, do our audience or we have to look forward to um, right now from you? I'm looking at uh, Indian prisons of war in Europe. So I'm continuing mm-hmm. that, that strand. Um, so the 15,000 or so uh, Indians mostly captured in North Africa or Italy who were prison, imprisoned in Germany, in France, in Italy, and in some cases beyond that, um, and what happened to them, and specifically one of the escapes. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking mm. to, um, to tell that story. I need to do some. I'm just starting that, pro- that project. Oh, the, research is, the research is the next stage. That's, that's wonderful. And um, what sort of suggestions would you have for someone who's, um, you know, not someone always been on the trajectory of being, say, studying history or writing history? Because I, for one, do act, want to actively engage in popular understanding of history. So what sort of, um, you know, um, suggestions would you have for someone who's starting out to engage uh, in popular history and making it more accessible? Oh, that's a good question. Thank you for that question, Anna. Um, I think I would, firstly, I'd say you, it's good to keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. Try not to um, make your decision about what happened and, you know, about what happened in the past before you've really seen as much evidence as you can. And secondly, I think I would suggest that you that talk, find, find your sources as wide as possible. So, um, so, you know, find out, talk, interview your grandparents. Sure, everyone should interview their grandparents, without a doubt. Um, but interview your grandparents and find out what they remember and record that. And don't try not to judge them. Try not to, you know, jump in and say, hang on a second. That's not what it says in the history books. Just listen to them. Listen to them talking and record it on a, you know, record the audio. Um, and, and also read as widely as you can, but then get into the archives. You know, archives are great places. And finding those firsthand things, letters and official documents and diaries, finding those things in the archives is just wonderful. Um, and then, you know, and then you can put, start to put those things together. And then the other bit, of course, if you're doing public history, is that you have to learn to communicate. You have to learn to um, speak to people and to learn to speak in ways that they will understand. So that's having an understanding of your audience. Um, and then you have to learn to write. And then you have to learn to use technology as well, you know, and to, to find different ways to to, to put the stuff across in, in film or to TV or, or on the internet or whatever it might be. Um, but if you can't communicate it in a way that people are interested in, then you're never going to be a public historian. And part of that is about stories. Part of that is about acknowledging that people love stories. People respond to stories. They like to hear things that are kind of laid out for them in that, you know, story way. That's my advice. Yeah, thank you so much. That's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Borman. It was wonderful having this conversation with you. Completely enjoyed it. And thank you. It was my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this conversation with Dr. Guy Bowman. We really hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There's a series of such amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the history of the subcontinent. 
check out our website www.indiacolonized.com for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of India's contemporary history. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.